you have heard, but we're moving to Main Street St. Charles uh, here in a few months. Next Saturday, uh, the 16th of October, we were having a huge demolition uh, day, and so we would welcome you to bring your hard hat, safety goggles, and a hammer. I don't own one, so bring one for me. We're really excited about it. Um, tonight, though, is a really cool opportunity. Uh, after all of this is over tonight, and we worship together, and we uh, dig into the Word of God together, we're actually opening up the new building on Main Street for us to be able to check it out. And uh, we're going to have a bunch of pizza down there and drinks, and you'll get to kind of feel what it's going to feel like to be down on Main Street after our church gathering. So just want to welcome all of you to come down. Uh, it's right across from Picasso's and uh, Ham's Deli, right next to Llewellyn's. Um, if you can't find a parking spot, there's a big parking garage right by City Hall. It's only two blocks away, one block down, one block over. So we'd welcome all of you to come down and hang with us tonight. It should be a whole lot of fun. Are you ready to go tonight, though? I, uh, I need to share a frustration, if I could, uh, with you. As a parent, uh, one of the most frustrating stages... How many of you are parents? Any parents here tonight? So we have some new parents. Good to see uh, the Montgomery's here, man. Brand new baby. Yeah. How are you guys feeling so far? Getting any sleep? All right. Good. You can tell in their eyes they're not. Anyways, um, one of the most frustrating stages of being a parent is when your kids can't talk and all they do is grunt. And... Um, and it gets even more specific when, when that particular person is, uh, is your son and when that particular person is a clone of you and who's, who's very talkative without talking. It gets very frustrating. Um, right now, Dawson, my son, he, he is a very boisterous young lad. Um, he has much to say without saying anything. Um, I'm pretty sure he calls both me and Heidi mom, uh, which I'm, not, I'm a little bit confused by. Um, right now, though, his favorite grunts are, uh, his, his, probably one of his favorite grunts is at airplanes. Dude is obsessed with airplanes. Anytime he sees or hears an airplane, inside or outside, I mean, he is like grunting. Like, I mean, it's, it's crazy. He grunts at that. He grunts when he wants Cheez-Its. Some of you do that as well. And um, he also grunts uh, when he wants to watch the Fresh Beat Band. Have, you, have some of you guys heard of this show? It's on Nickelodeon. These four... And they, they, it's really cheesy, and I'm sorry, that I, but I, I have to admit I watch a lot of it because uh, that happens to be his favorite show. But there's a new grunt that my son has. Can I share that with you? Great. Um, we're in the same rhythm every night when I take him to bed. So we, we, he crawls up the stairs, and he has his passing, his dog dog, this little blue blanket thing, which I'm kind of ashamed of, but he has it. And I want him to just, like, carry a football to bed. You know what I'm saying? Like, can't you just, like, sleep with a big ball or something? But uh, anyway, so, so we, we, he crawls up the stairs. And then he stands next to this lamp that's in the hallway. And he stands there until I turn it on. And so I turn it on, and then he, like, looks up and, and smiles. And, and then he goes next to the box fan that's upstairs. Because uh, for those of you that know us, we have box fans in just about every room of our house. Uh, to, just to, at night, we just love box fans. So our kids both have a box fan. There's a, hallway in, there's a box fan in the hallway to, like, any— We could have a party in our house, and our kids wouldn't know. It's pretty sweet, right? So he waits for me to turn on the box fan, and I turn on the box fan. And then we, we, go to, we go to his room, and he waits out in the hallway until I go in, and then he, then he looks and laughs at me and runs down the hallway to his sister's room just to, like, wreck havoc. And so he goes in there, and he wrecks havoc, and then I come and get him, and I pick him up, and, and we go into his room. And there's this new grunt, and the grunt is he, he puts his hands together, and there's a very distinctive grunt when it's time to pray. And I, I, I'm obsessed with it. It's like this... It's kind of like he's saying pray, but it's more like he's saying cow in, in a grunt. You know what I'm saying? I, it's like a mixture between the two. And, and, he, and he, puts, he puts his hands together, and he seriously, he knows, like, all right, it's time to pray. And so we pray together, 
and when, when we say amen, he reaches out his hands, and, and then we put him to bed. And Heidi said he's, he's doing this rhythm for nap time, too. It's really, really cool. Um, it's crazy to think for us as individuals uh, how disconnected at times we are just in prayer. And, and last week, we just started to breach this conversation. Tonight, listen, I just have to give you a precursor. This is a weighty, weighty text tonight, all right? We're studying Daniel, and for those of you that are just joining us, we've been in it uh, about a month and a half. And I want to catch you up to speed a little bit if I can, okay? Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, the king of the modern world, has this dream. Freaks him out, okay? He's really scared. He doesn't know what to do. So he calls all the wise men of Babylon together. And he says, look, I don't just want you to interpret this dream for me. I actually want you to tell me what the dream was. I don't want any cheaters here. I don't want anyone just acting like they can give me the interpretation. So you know what? You tell me the dream, you give me the interpretation, then we're all good. What do the wise men say? They're like, no man can interpret and tell someone their own dream. It's impossible. And so Nebuchadnezzar takes to that pretty kindly, and he says, everyone dies then. And so he literally, the most powerful man in the world, decrees that every single wise man in his kingdom will die. We talked about the insecurity of a man that desires to kill some of his closest compadre, some of the people that are ultimately giving him tremendous wisdom. Nebuchadnezzar is a man who's insecure, but he throws out that, the decree. Well, the decree isn't just for these wise men that are Babylonians, but also for these wise men that are Jews. 50 to 75 of them were deported, were exiled in 605 B.C. by Nebuchadnezzar to Babylon. Four of those we've met very intimately, and one of those, the leader of the pack's name is Daniel. So Daniel, after uh, being told that he is included in this death sentence, steps up and says, you know what, um, actually King's chief executioner, it's nice to meet you by the way, um, th there's no reason for anyone to die here. I'm going to tell the king the interpretation and the dream. My problem was, uh, Daniel at this point didn't know the dream or the interpretation. But he steps up in this like phenomenal moment of faith. And then last week we saw what he did. What does he do? He goes back to his house, and in his house are his three friends. And what does he tell them to do? Boys, it's time to pray. I don't know the dream. I don't know its interpretation. Death sentence on all of us. It's time, and he says specifically, to ask the mercies of God. And so that night as he lays down, guess what happens? God speaks to Daniel and tells Daniel not just the interpretation of the dream, but the dream itself. And Daniel wakes up. And you remember what we saw last week. He worships. He prays. God answers the prayer. And his first inclination is, I must worship. God has answered the prayer. I have to worship. And we saw this beautiful psalm, this beautiful song that he just pours out of his heart as a natural implication of God answering prayer. Now, the rhythm then in Daniel is pray, answer, worship. But that's not the only rhythm for us. Because we're to worship whether God answers yes, no, maybe, or not now. That's where many Christians have found themselves in a dangerous place. They want to worship when God says, when they plead for a new house and God gives them a new house. But they don't want to worship when they pray for health for someone and God decides that no, it's time to take a life. You're like, whoa, this is pretty weighty already. This is the sovereignty of God, the beauty of God that we here have come to know and appreciate, the God of the Scriptures. 
The rhythm isn't just pray, answer, worship. It's pray, answer, worship, action. If it wasn't, then I would just commend all of you guys to go to some bunker somewhere, right? And just pray and let God answer and you just worship all by yourself in this dark room all of your life. That would be the rhythm then. But it's not. We live lives. We are in missional opportunities all over our community, in our workplaces, in our city. So the rhythm that we find tonight in the text is Daniel didn't just pray, God didn't just answer, Daniel didn't just worship, but guess what? Daniel takes phenomenal action. So, as a cliffhanger, tonight, the dream and its interpretation and so much more. Are you ready? Open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2. The page number is on your screen for the pew Bibles that are right in front of your gourd. Excited again to see you, and we must start in a verse 25. When you're there, say, I'm there. A few of you still to come there. We all there? All right. Now, again, listen. Please, okay? Weighty stuff. Hang in there, all right? We're going to teach 21 verses tonight, which is the most amount of verses that I've taught in literally three years here at Matthias, okay? We're not going to be here till 9, I promise. But we need, we need to stay together, all right? Here we go, verse 25. Then Ariarch, who's Ariarch? He's a Nebuchadnezzar's right-hand man in some senses. Ariarch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said this to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. You've got to kind, of, uh, <laughs> kind of find Ariarch interesting here, right? Uh, Ariarch's done nothing, and yet he's trying to take credit for this. O king Nebuchadnezzar, right? Like, the great Ariarch is here with this man that I found in the weeds randomly. Like, here he is. Guess what? He's going to give us the interpretation. So intriguing, a man trying to take credit where credit is not due. But there's another interesting word in that phrase. Any guesses? Any guesses? Interesting word. Starts with an E. Exiles. Now, I've told you so much. I've taught so much on Nebuchadnezzar's strategy was what? Take these Jews deport them to Babylon, brainwash them, and encompass them in the what? In the culture of Babylon. This gives us some indication, though, of some of the language that's used behind closed doors. Apparently still in the king's court, these Jews, though they're trying to integrate into Babylonian culture, these Jews are called exiles, okay? Both to Nebuchadnezzar, to Ariarch, and behind the, the doors of the kingship, these Jews aren't Babylon, Babylonians, they are exiles. So Ariarch brings them in and says, here, king, Check it out, it's Daniel, and he's going to rock your world. Verse 26, the king declared to Daniel then, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Now, no, no, no. For us to get the power of this, we have to picture this. Uh, how many of you f uh, females here like, like a little gold? Any of you guys like a little gold? Okay. Um, if you're dating someone that's here, just take mental note, right? A paper ring will do. Paper ring, right? That'll, that'll do just nicely. Listen to this. An ancient historian visited Babylon 90 years after the empire fell, 90 years after. And he, he wrote some, some thoughts. And his thoughts were this. Babylon, 90 years after the fall of the entire empire, is still so filled with gold that you cannot look one square inch of Babylon and not see gold somewhere. 90 years after an empire falls... There is gold everywhere still, though it's been ransacked by the Persians. Crazy. This says how much gold is here. So picture this. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the modern world at this time, sitting maybe on his throne, 
Belteshazzar, a 19 or 20-year-old, comes in and says, guess what? I'm going to tell you the interpretation. All of the gold, all of, just picture it in your mind. Ariarch's there. This is not a fairy tale. I've told you over and over and over. Daniel is more than a lion's den and a fiery furnace. It's a beautiful portrayal of God's love and sovereignty. And so here's what Daniel says in verse 21, or verse 27. Daniel answered the king after the king said, hey, are you, are you going to tell me what's up here? Daniel answered the king and said, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. I've told you before, in this culture, in this setting, magic was huge. It was huge. There were magicians, sorcerers, wisdom from the enchantments and omens were all over the place. In fact, Daniel was trained in that. But what does he say? He says something that the exact same wise men had just told Nebuchadnezzar before. No wise men can do this. This is impossible. What you've asked cannot happen. But... There is a God, verse 28. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Whoa, 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 whoa. Daniel standing before the king of the modern world who definitely doesn't worship the God of heaven. I've told you over and over and over, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar worships this God named Marduk or Marduk, right? There were all kinds of gods in Babylon. And he looks him in the eye and says, no man can do it. But there's a God in heaven that can share this dream and its interpretation. Now, I've told you before, there are moments throughout this Daniel picture where we're going to get a massive glimpse of his character. Last week we saw this, this deep desire in Daniel to pray. And here we see a phenomenal sense of humility. What do I mean? Have you ever been in a setting where a group of people have come up and they begin giving you credit for something, though you know full well in your heart that it wasn't you that's deserved, deserved of it. And they, they start pouring on the compliments. Oh, whatever, that was so nice and that was so great. You and your heart know that it wasn't you, but the people who were to take credit for it, they're not there. and In fact, they'll never know. How quick are you to take credit for something where credit is not due when no one's looking and no one will ever know? If I could just in the picture that I have in my mind, if I can just slide myself in to credit's position, if I, could, if I could just slide myself there, then maybe this person will see me in this light or this person will see me in this light or I'll have this portrayal from this group of people. Here what we see Daniel do is he doesn't just slide himself out of credit's position, he runs out of it. No, no, you don't, God, there's a God in heaven who's revealed this. If there was ever an opportunity in his life for pride to well up in his soul. It was this moment in time. He's standing before the king who has said, you're going to die if you can't give me this interpretation. God's already spoken the interpretation. He could look King Nebuchadnezzar in the eye and say, I am the great Daniel. I have a great word for you. But here's my uh, terms, right? I'll take, you know, this fatted calf over here. I'll take this piece of the kingdom over here. You give me that savvy, now we'll work with this. No. He runs out of the position of credit and instantly says, there is a God in heaven who will reveal the mystery. Listen, there's going to be a, a really, really opportunistic moment for us to see a bunch of pieces come together in this text. But it has to begin with humility in us right now. I don't want to talk about humility in a cliche sense or in a sense where we'll just do Christian jumping jacks and say, oh, I'm humble. Oh, no, I don't want to do any of that. I want tonight to say, there is this deep sense in Daniel's character 
that exhibits humility, and we're going to find out why. Are we together? So he says, there is a God in heaven that reveals this mystery. Look at this. And it's, and it's about the latter days, which is why Nebuchadnezzar is in such angst about this. It's about his end. Any of you who have ever read a history book, and many of you have taken history without reading the book, but if you've sat in history class, right, you've heard about kings and their dreams that they had or the premonitions that they had about their fall. And you know what kings have done crazy amounts of stuff because of things that they've seen that, okay, I'll fall this way. Kings have committed suicide before because of things just like this. Daniel says the dream is about the latter days. And it happened while you were laying in bed. And he says this in verse 29. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what will be after this. And he who reveals mystery made known to me what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me. Look look at this, look at this. Not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living. Okay, so if you didn't get it the first time, if you didn't hear me say the God of heaven, let me make it clear again. It's not because of me. This isn't my wisdom. Can you picture this? A 19, 20-year-old man, often 19, 20-year-old dudes, females, can you give a little props here, a little bit filled with a little bit of pride. You know what I'm saying? Like a little bit of sticking out the other chest here. But this, this man is different. This man says, no, 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 it's not me. It's the God of heaven. This God has given me this wisdom, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. There's a purpose in me being here, and it's that you may know the dream. To what end? Ah, that's the whole picture of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar wrestling, and here we begin to see the beginnings of it. Verse 31, are you ready for the dream? (laughs) This is going to be very interesting, by the way. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. The image here in the Aramaic, remember I told you last time, there's three sections in the Old Testament that are Aramaic and not Hebrew, and this is one of them. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This isn't, a, um, this isn't an idol. All right, this is, a, this is an image, a statue, rather, in the Aramaic. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. Okay, so you can start to get this picture in your head. By the way, as you're listening to this, I've conjured up a picture of this. No, don't put it up yet, but so we'll, we'll, we'll get a chance to look at what this thing's going to look like. Verse 32, the head of the image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze. <laughs> this is like a, this is much better than a Barbie, right? Its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, And it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, broken in pieces. Oh, excuse me. Broken in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. It's okay if you don't get it yet. Um, He couldn't make this up, okay? I think that's clear, right? like, you don't just show up to, to someone and take some random guesses. Okay, uh, so Nebuchadnezzar, you were, you were falling from, from this big story building, and, you know, no, like, phenomenal detail here, right? Now, I have to admit, I, I haven't drawn this myself, though I am pretty savvy at art. Uh, but this is kind of what I'm guessing it would have looked like here. Um, so we have, some, uh, we have some head of gold there. We, in the middle there, you see the silver uh, over the, the mini skirt there, we have uh, bronze and brass, and, uh, and then legs of iron. Now, 
I want you to notice as well that the feet, uh, a little bit dicey there, it's a mixture of iron and clay, so it's very, very brittle. Now, let's make a couple observations just about this, and then we'll get to the interpretation. Gold, silver, bronze, or brass, and iron. First of all, uh, the value goes down as the statue goes down, okay? I'm not a captain at jewelry metals, right? But I know this, that silver is less precious than gold, that bronze is less precious than silver, and that iron is definitely less precious than all of the above. We together. But also know this. Gold weighs more than silver, all right? Gold weighs more than brass. Gold weighs the weight of all of these metals goes down as well. But there's something that goes in reverse. What is it? The strength of the metals, okay? Iron is stronger than brass, brass stronger than silver, and silver stronger than gold. So at the very base of the statue, we have strength going up, value going down, and we start to get an interesting picture here, right? This is the, the image or so that Nebuchadnezzar had. Okay, so it's one thing to give the, give the dream, which would have, can we just agree at this point, and I love that we don't see Nebuchadnezzar saying anything, because I could imagine like just him being like, like you just regurgitated to me exactly what I had in my mind. He doesn't say a word, because I'm sure at this point he's in awe of what's happening. So Daniel says, here's what it is. Verse 36, this was the dream. Now we will tell the king it's what? It's interpretation. Here we go. Verse 37. Again, this isn't going to make a whole lot of sense until here in just a little bit, so hang with me. Verse 37. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks into pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay." <laughs> And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw, the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And I'm reading this thinking, is that an interpretation or another dream, right? Like, I, I don't feel like you interpreted much, right? Okay, this, this seems interesting here. Now, what you're going to find about Daniel, it's a prophetic book. Listen. This chunk, of, this chunk of scripture. Many of you struggle with the Bible, okay? Many of you struggle having faith that the text is real. You think that it's fairy tales or fables. This is one of the most profound prophetic words in all the scripture, okay? 330 prophecies in the Old Testament about King Jesus. This includes that, and we'll get there. But the overarching dynamic of this dream and this interpretation to world's history is unbelievable. So he says first, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head. This is a good start. Um, the head is the Babylonian Empire. It's the head of gold, all right? Now, the Babylonian Empire, as I've already mentioned, it was all about gold. So one could say, well, well this isn't much of a prophetic word, right? Because I can see gold, and I'm Daniel, and so you're the head of gold, and it's... 
But it shows us this, that the Babylonian Empire, from the empires that we're about to talk about, was the most valuable. It had tremendous worth. We know that Nebuchadnezzar built one of the seven wonders of the world in his gardens. He was a great, great educator, all right? He was wise, and he built a phenomenal kingdom. But there's a kingdom that overtakes him. King Cyrus comes along. Next slide. In the Medo-Persian Empire, or the Medo, however you want to pronounce it, the Medes and the Persians come along. They take out the Babylonian Empire, and here's what gets really interesting. When you start studying history, which all of you do, I'm sure, on your weeknights and weekends, right, you find out this, that the Medes and the Persians developed one of the most intimate tax systems in the entire world, and you want to know what their coin of choice was. Anyone? Silver. Silver. Of all things, there have been other means. Who was that over here? That was brilliant, right? There have been other means of gathering coin. There have been other means of taxing people. These were the first groups of people to come along and say silver. In fact, it was so much so that the kings, when they died, would collect and put in houses for their families. These massive amounts of silver storehouses. Unbelievable. The Medo-Persian Empire lasts about 200 years. Again, King Cyrus was the uh, major factor there. The next uh, empire are the Greeks, the Grecian Empire. Now, this gets really, really intriguing. Anyone know who uh, was the beginning of the Greek Empire? Alexander the... The great. In his 20s, it's said of ancient historians that he often wept over the fact that he had no more world to conquer. Could you imagine that? You're sitting in your room crying because there's no one else to, like, there's no one else to kill, right? Um, this is so horrible, right? But, but that was him. Alexander the Great, he was uh, obviously a phenomenal militarian, a great uh, humanitarian, apparently. Uh, but but the, the Greek empire was very powerful. Now, look at this. You want to know what the Greeks, uh, what their armor was? Okay, helmet, not so much. It was of, anyone know? The Olympian, no, it was grass, okay? You guys have seen it, right? Their literal helmet in the Greek empire often was of grass. Breastplate, armor, any, any guesses here? Bronze, okay? The shield, any guesses? Bronze. Those are kind of fairly common. What's not common is the fact that the sword of the Greeks was also made out of bronze. Unbelievable. And the Grecian Empire, the Greeks, came along and killed, it's estimated, over, over almost a half million of the Persians to take them over. Okay? And so here we have the Grecian Empire. Now, the last empire that Daniel's interpretation talks about is, of course, the Romans. Now, if each of these metals grows in strength from the previous, then what does it say? That the strongest empire was what? was the Roman Empire. Legs of iron, okay? These legs of iron. And it wasn't just the legs that are significant here, but the fact that there's, that there's two. Two legs and two feet. And if you know anything about the Roman Empire, you know that the empire divided into the east and the west, okay? And so this iron, this, this, this picture of the hammer coming down through the Roman Empire, Daniel gives this interpretation that, that what does this empire do? It's going to literally break and shatter into pieces because of the power of it. It was strong as iron because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. The Romans come in and, and literally rule for 500 to 1,000 years, depending on which side of the empire we're talking about. Now, all of this is historically accurate. So, some could say uh, commentators came in later. They looked at this dream and they're like, ooh, this is convenient. We could, like, throw some good interpretation here. Look, there's four world empires. Let's just add some name in here. We'll tell everyone it's in the Bible, and then we'll all feel good about what the Scripture says. 
or its completely accurate prophecy that Daniel gives 600 years in advance in some cases to what has happened. Unbelievable. The development of all of these world empires Nebuchadnezzar sees in his dream. I also want you to take note of how Daniel approaches Nebuchadnezzar's fall. Did you notice? He kind of takes it a little bit light on him. All right, did you guys see this? Uh, look again in verse 37. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom. Don't get confused here. He's not saying you're the king of kings of the world. He's making, it, making it a true statement. Right now, on this planet, you're pretty much ruling all the people. Under God, of course, but we'll get into that later. Whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, God's sovereign, the power, and the might, and the glory. Look at verse 38. And into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall rise. He doesn't even like talk about its fall. And this is going to be the thing that Nebuchadnezzar would get the most angst about. So, like, how, how's this going to happen? Are they going to come in? Or are we going to... Well, if you know anything about Nebuchadnezzar, you know this. After Nebuchadnezzar dies, after 43 or 46, one of the two years of reign, there are like five or six emperors after him, and three of them are killed within the first two years of the reign. After Nebuchadnezzar goes, the Babylonian Empire dies. Okay. Statue, we understand the empires. But there's one piece of this whole interpretation that we've been missing. Okay? Look at this again. Let's look back up in, uh, in verse uh, 35. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces. By what? By verse 34. Look at this. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. So apparently, with this statue, though it, it digresses in its strength, at the very base of the statue is what? The what? The weakest point. Okay? You have iron mixed with clay, the weakest point. And what does the dream say happen? A stone comes in that's not made by human hands. Somehow a stone appears. That stone hits at the very base of this statue, knocking over the statue. All of that stuff is like chaff. And then what happens? That stone becomes a, becomes a huge mountain. Well, if you're uh, 600 years B.C., that means 600 or so years before Jesus shows up on the scene. And if you know anything about the empires, you know that who is in charge when Jesus comes on the scene? The Roman Empire. It's the Roman Empire who's standing at the base of the cross watching Jesus, sticking him with a spear as blood and water flows. And yet in this dream, the stone is seen taking out the entire statue. Now, here's what Daniel says. Look at this. Verse 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven, whoa. In the days of those kings. So while all of these empires are building themselves, while all of these empires are taking people out and killing people, God is doing something. And in those days, uh, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Okay, keep in mind, he's still face-to-face -face with Nebuchadnezzar, okay? 
he hasn't now gone in like the lobby area to get a glass of water. He's still looking the king in the face. He gives a good interpretation, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head, you're the gold, but guess what? There's going to be a stone that comes in, not made by human hands, that's going to kill all of these kingdoms, wipe them out. It's going to be like chaff. And not just that, guess what? This kingdom will be set up by God, created by God, ordained by God, and it will never be destroyed. All of these kingdoms, what's the picture? Destroyed, destroyed, taken over, destroyed. But there's one kingdom that will stand. There's one kingdom that will not be extinguished. There is one kingdom that will literally last forever. And in verse 44 at the end we see it will be all victorious. Do you see this? Unbelievable stuff. All based on the stone. All based on Jesus. Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar about Jesus. 600 years before Jesus shows up on the scene, Daniel looks the king of the modern world in the eye and says, King Jesus. He's the stone. He will crush all of these empires. All of them will not be able to stand. They will be like chaff in the wind. And the God of the universe, the God of heaven, which you don't worship, Nebuchadnezzar, is going to do it all. So guess what? All of these people are building their own kingdoms. Only under God's rule and reign. There is a greater kingdom, a bigger kingdom, that's behind all of this. Including your your rule, Nebuchadnezzar. Remember what Jesus tells Pontius Pilate? You're only doing what what you have power to have been done right now. Like You're not doing anything in and of your own accord. You've been allowed by God to put me on a cross right now, so do what you're here to do. Unbelievable stuff, but Daniel isn't done. Look at this, verse 45. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. And what shall be after this and rule and reign forever is Jesus. Listen, pause just for a minute. Can you please, no matter whether you're a... a, a Jesus-following person, or you came in here with no understanding at all of Christ, can you at least surrender the fact that all of this is more than circumstance? Can you at least surrender the fact? I say all the time, the Bible isn't just faith. There's logic. If all of this would historically line up, if somehow Daniel would know the prophecy of Christ and talk about the stone that would come and look the Roman Empire in the face and say, kill me, go ahead. Three days later, I'm going to rise and there's going to be an empty tomb and your soldiers won't even know what happened because they're going to be sitting outside the tomb and I'm going to walk right out. If all of that could happen, then what does the Bible become? You guys always hear me say, one of my biggest defenses of the scripture is the fact that in the Gospels, there are, 10, uh, there are 12 disciples who don't get it. They're walking around. Who's the greatest of us all, right? They're, kids, get away. I mean, Jesus is like, bring the kids to me. And they're like, get out of here, kids, you riffraff. You know what I mean? Like, they don't get it. Throughout all the Gospels, they're up and down in their faith. They run at the cross. They're scared. They're fearful. Peter denies the name of Jesus to a servant girl, mind you. But then, the Scripture says that 10 of 11 were killed because of their faith. What happens in that? No one can tell me logically that when the scripture says these boys who were fearful and afraid and lacking faith, no one can tell me they didn't see the risen Jesus. You don't die for something you don't believe in. They saw the risen Christ, and then after they see the risen Christ, they die for Jesus. If you're alive, this is all real. 
for me, as I'm reading this text, and I'm seeing all this interpretation, and I'm beginning to understand the history, this legitimizes the fact that this is God's word and not a history book. Somehow, miraculously, God spoke to Daniel of the Savior, listen, that he as a Jew, deported from his home, kidnapped, was sitting just like every other Jew who is God-fearing, waiting for the Savior, and Daniel just gets a picture of him here. You want to know a little foreshadowing? In Daniel chapter 7, you know what Daniel calls Jesus, the son of anyone? The son of man. Daniel gets a brilliant picture of Jesus. But it's not over yet. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. And one of my favorite pieces of this entire text. Look at this. This is how he ends. So beautiful. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. So it's like, it's not like already Nebuchadnezzar's mouth is completely open in awe. You have this 19-year-old or 20-year-old kid looking at the king of the modern world and he says, uh, the interpretation here, like it's done. It will happen. And it's, it's completely sure. With all confidence in the world, he looks at Nebuchadnezzar and said, what I've just told you is completely and wholeheartedly true. Now, as I sat back and I was wrestling with all of the things that are happening in the text and all the things that I see in Daniel's life and the fact that I saw a man seek out prayer and then I saw a man worship and now I see a man in action and all these things are coming together. And now I see a confidence in his God that's unparalleled. He's so confident in his God that he's able to look Nebuchadnezzar and say these things. Where does this confidence come from? This has been my question. Why do sometimes I, 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 have, I lack confidence in Christ? Why do sometimes I feel like I can do it on my own? Why does sometimes it just come off so about me? Why does this happen? Daniel has such a confidence and faith and trust in his God that he is so bold in the face of an empire that we, would, we can't even imagine that picture. Look, listen. We see a man who seeks out God in prayer. We see a man worship. We see a man go to action. And listen, we see a man when there's opportunity to take credit. What does he do? He leaves it for God. It's not me. It's all him. What does this tell us then? That there's some strange connection between prayer and humility and worship and confidence. And the question is this. The connection is this. God has been asking me the last two days, do you have confidence in me? I'm writing in my journal, do I have confidence in God? And then I have this sense as I'm reading in my scripture, okay, um, so what's your prayer life looking like? Well, do you have confidence in me? Your prayer life will reveal it. Because when you have confidence in me, you know that you need me. And when you know that you need me, you're always talking to me. Okay? Fairly convicting. Uh, what's your worship like? Like just your plain obedience. You obey me? Because if you were confident in me, then you would know that wherever I sent you, whatever I called you to do, that you could rest and trust in me. So are you obeying? Okay. The biggest question for me this week has been, are you humble? Are you trying to take credit where credit's not due you? And if so, 
then what that reveals is you don't need God's help. Listen, Daniel will become so incredibly powerful in the world, has such an opportunity right here to take credit for himself, and yet he passes by because every day he's praying and pleading, he's worshiping, he's taking action. This is a man who knows that he needs God's help. And it's not just revealed by rhetoric. Oh, I need God's help. God, you're all sufficient. God, your grace is good. This is a man who says, I need God's help, and it will reveal itself in every means of my life. You're not praying. What you're communicating is you don't need God's help. It has become so clear to me. When my prayer life is struggling, one of the things that it reveals is, I need God not. When my prayer life is flourishing, what it shows is, I have to have God. God is all sufficient. He's my only hope, my only help. If I'm not living in obedience, I'm believing them, then I can somehow create a kingdom that will last for me and my name's sake. But the picture of the word is every kingdom will fall except one. I just ask you simply tonight, church, do you need him? And I don't want you to answer with your mouth. I want you to, I want you to answer with your actions. The amount of time you spent praying, the amount of time you spent obeying, the amount of time you spent passing the buck and the, and the confidence and the glory to God. No, to God be the glory. I'm nothing without him. So, the picture of the scripture is that um, all of these kingdoms, because of the King Jesus, look at this, gold and silver and bronze, Hundreds and hundreds of years of wealth and power, world dominance, having everything that the world could ever want. Do you understand? Here it is. On a little glass sheet, like chaff in the wind. And it just, it's nothing. It's nothing. No substance. Gone forever. Are those the kingdoms that you're trying to build, friends? Or tonight, can you, however you came in, say, I know that I'm nothing without him. I need his help. And not just his help, but his saving. And that will be revealed by my life. The only way we can have that is through the, bro- the broken body of Jesus. signifying the greatest need for help. Humans could one day look to Jesus and see his broken body and say, yes, because of your sacrifice, Christ, I can be made whole and I can have right relationship with your Father. And so he broke the bread on the night with his disciples and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. Then he holds up the cup. Listen in a representation of our only hope right here. The blood of the perfect Passover lamb, King Jesus. Allowing each and every one of us tonight to say, I need your help. And guess what? Help is here. He says, this is the blood and it represents the blood of the new covenant. No longer the old promise of following the law, but now the new promise of following me and Jesus. So take this cup and drink. And when you drink it, remember that I'm your king.
tonight, this meal as we respond, is for followers of Jesus who in these moments of intimate worship, your walk to pull off the bread and dip it in the cup is signifying that you need him and that you desire with all you are to communicate that once and for all. I have nowhere else to go. I need you wholly and wholeheartedly. And guess what happens? Confidence in God. Reliance in God, confidence in God. And we leave these church buildings now. Not just sharing words and singing songs, but we leave truly being the church. Let's pray together. God, thank you for the establishment of your kingdom that is universal and eternal, that is all victorious. Thank you, God, that it is here now and yet still to come. God, I thank you for this, this revelation that you gave Daniel, that you would send your son to be the savior, to be the helper, to be the restorer. God, I pray tonight that we put no confidence in the flesh. I pray tonight that by your spirit and for your glory, we put confidence in you, trusting in you, believing in you, ready to give you all of the credit for everything that we have, both joy and trial. God, create in us tonight a clean heart. Church, respond when you're ready.